0: worksheet 21 the testimony of jesus the testimony of jesus in our previous evening's message we spoke about the remnant people of god being identified as those who the dragon was angry with that is the devil or satan and they keep the commandments of god and they also have the testimony of jesus so if anything is going to be God's last day, end time, faithful church. It has to meet those criteria. Satan's going to be real, real mad at them. They keep all the commandments of God, and they have within their ranks the testimony of Jesus. Now, on a superficial level, you could say, well, everyone has a testimony of Jesus. And I would hope that that's absolutely true. Every single Christian should have a personal testimony about how Jesus has changed their life about how, what they were before, and especially what they've become after. You know, how Jesus has answered their questions, has opened their eyes, has led them to truth, all these things. Of course, every Christian should have a personal testimony about the goodness of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, now the question is, is that what this is talking about? Now, a very cynical crowd, all of <laughs> Well, let's discover what this is talking about. What is the testimony of Jesus? And does, as we've talked about, the Seventh-day Adventist Church meet the criteria as God's end-time people, having the devil mad at it, keeping the commandments of God, and having this testimony of Jesus? But before we do this study, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we thank you for so many good gifts. We thank you especially for Jesus And Lord, we want to have a personal testimony about the goodness of Jesus. We couldn't be a Christian without it. But beyond that, Lord, we want to understand what this particular concept means. So we ask that you sharpen our minds and soften our hearts to not only understand but apply the message from your word this evening. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to the book of Revelation, page 1182 in your pew Bible. page 1182 in your pew bible the book of revelation chapter 12 again we'll just recite what we just saw but i want you to make sure you know exactly where that's found in scripture after of course revelation chapter 12 outlines the entire history of the church and its struggles against its greatest enemy satan himself the dragon and the woman as it's so picturesquely uh, explained in revelation chapter 12 it talks about how the dragon was enraged with this woman after the little horn power has done its thing, after the judgment in heaven has started. And there is this little group, the very last verse of Revelation chapter 12, who just will not relent, who will not give in. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring. And again, we focused on that last night. The woman is the church. And apparently, though, other offspring may have fallen away and gone gone to the, uh, gone to uh, a dis, what it was the word unfaithfulness to the Lord. There is this faithful few who refers to as the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I would be in favor of a view of the testimony of Jesus Christ simply being a personal testimony that each of those believers have about the goodness of Jesus Christ in their life. If this were the only mention of it in the Book of Revelation. But, praise the Lord, even in our best estimation, we are not the Bible's interpreter. The Bible is its own interpreter. And the book of Revelation continues to explain to us what this testimony of Jesus actually is. So let's go to the right now, to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Now, you have to understand, in, in the book of Revelation, there's some very difficult things. You know, Revelation chapter 17 talks about Babylon the Great, and it's this unfaithful woman, this harlot woman, who's the mother of harlots. And it's a very bad, bad imagery. And Revelation chapter 18 is the same thing. and says the fall of Babylon. Come out of her, my people. And finally, in Revelation chapter 19, Babylon gets destroyed, and God's people are redeemed, and you can tell almost in the writing that John is ecstatic. In fact, so much so that he kind of loses his senses a little bit. Look at chapter 19. We'll start with verse 9. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And of course, the Lamb is whom? Jesus Christ, and he says, blessed are they who are called to this marriage supper, exclamation point. It's exciting. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. So John is finally writing good news. And now what he he does, verse 10, and I fell at his feet to do what? Now, after you've seen our messages in the previous evenings, the big issue in the end times is going to be worship of the true God versus worship of anything else that's not God, namely Babylon, the Antichrist. Right? There's the true worship and the false worship, and here Babylon has fallen in this image that he's given, and he rejoices so much so that he falls at the feet of the angel messenger to worship him as God, which is basically treating him like the Antichrist. He says, don't do it. In fact, he specifically says this. Watch See that you do not do that, exclamation point. Of all the things you could do, that is a bad move. And he explains why. I am your fellow, what? Servant. He's like, I have a role in this to play too. I'm a messenger. By the way, you can go back to Revelation chapter 1 and you can see how God gives a message to Jesus Christ. Jesus gives it to his angel who gives it to his prophet who then writes it down and it gets disseminated. Right? There's a chain of giving the word of God. And he says, I'm just one of you. I'm one of your fellow servants. Now watch this now. Again, verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have... The testimony of Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Would an unfallen angel have a testimony of how Jesus has redeemed them? No. He said, but I'm one of you who has this testimony of Jesus. Interesting. And he explains what he means. I am your fellow servant and of your brother who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship whom? God. The whole point of this message is to get you to worship God, not you get you to worship me. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Aha! The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And just in case that is unclear, because I've heard some people say, well, there should be a spirit of general prophetic utterance, you know, people saying the truth, the, the final generation on earth's history will be telling the gospel message, and that's what this testimony of Jesus means. That's what the spirit of prophecy is. It's not the actual, you know, having a prophet. Well, you could argue that until you go to Revelation chapter 22, because it speaks of this one more time. Now, again, remember the language from chapter 19 now. He says, "...worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy." He says, I am one of your fellow servants and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Okay? Now just go to Revelation chapter 22. Again, he gets excited about what he sees, especially look at verse 7. Look at this exciting declaration. Jesus himself says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the, prophecy, the words of the prophecy of this book. In fact, let's skip back to verse 6. Let's give it a little bit further context. "...then he said to me, these words are faithful and true." Again, this is the angel messenger speaking to John. "...these words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place." It seems that there is a direct connection between prophets and servants here. "...God of the holy prophets sent his angel to his servants to show him the things which must take place." And one of those things is the very declaration of Jesus. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, verse 8. I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and I saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. He's so excited about the message that he accidentally worships the messenger. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant. So far, word for word, what he said previous, right? But last time he said, for I am your fellow servant who have the testimony of Jesus. Now what do he says, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets. Apparently the testimony of Jesus is specifically the gift of the spirit of prophecy manifested in a prophet. Not just generally throughout the people, but there would be a messenger who has the gift of prophecy amongst God's remnant last day people. Okay? They'll keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Apparently there would be this spirit of prophecy, the gift of prophecy would be clearly demonstrated in the people of God at these last times. Now, let's do a little bit, let's do a little bit of broader understanding of this. Let's go to our worksheets now. Your first fill in the blank under that little heading, Creator and Communicator, I want to point out something. Notice this. God not only created us, but he also communicates with us. We are not deists. Now, let me explain what I mean as you're filling that out. God not only created us, but he also communicates with us. We are not deists. There are people who believe in a God but in a very distant, very separated kind of way. They believe that God created the world, wound it up like a clock, you know, and then just kind of let it go. Right? And so he stays distance. Everything operates by law, natural law, this kind of thing, the laws of physics and the laws of science and the laws of cause and effect. And basically, God is not a personal God who ever comes and ever does things. For a deist, the idea of supernatural intervention or intercessory prayer or miracles or even, you know, the resurrection itself. This is silly. This is nonsense. Sure, there's a God. He created the whole thing and he stepped back and let it go. But we are not deists. We believe that not only did God create us, but he continued to work with us and communicate to us throughout his. Life. In fact, we're studying tonight a book right? He writes things down. He wants us to know things. God is not only our creator, but he's also a communicator. This is a very important point. God does not leave us in the dark. He wants us to know something, and he tells us. Now, the difficulty with that has been, ever since Genesis chapter 3, where sin entered the world, we can no longer have that face-to-face communication with the Lord, where he wants us to know something, so he comes down talks to us face to face, and says what's on his mind. We can't have that. If the Lord were to reveal his face to us and speak to us directly as a brother speaks to a brother, what would happen to us? We would die. The Lord himself said so in Genesis. I mean Exodus chapter 33. No man can see my face and do what? Live. It's like I could show you me, but that would be the end of you. And that's not what God's goal is. So he says, somehow I have to keep distant enough that you live, but communicate with you so you can know the way to life. Does that make sense? Okay, now, even after sin ended face-to-face access, God communicated, he had to get creative, which is not a problem, he's a creator, right? Sometimes, God would speak out loud audibly. Sometimes, on very rare occasion, the Lord himself from heaven would speak words to humanity. Okay. Can you think of even one or two instances? Mount Sinai, for instance, the Lord comes down. His presence is on the top of the mountain. Of course, it's enshrouded sh- in fog and smoke and, and cloud and all these things. But he speaks, and the children of Israel hear it. And what's their response? They're terrified. They say, Moses, you go talk to him. Relay it through you. We can't take it. Right? Don't let it happen again. Sometimes he speaks out loud. You think of the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son, the voice from heaven says, right? But aside from those few times, and there's one or two others, but for the most part, God doesn't communicate his will by just speaking into the air. That's not how he communicates. Now, even more creatively, in the days of ancient Israel, the high priest who had this breastplate with all the stones representing the twelve tribes of Israel also had two stones on the shoulders, one called the Urim and one called the Thummim. And they would meet with the Lord And he would indicate from time to time his approval or disapproval of some sort of idea by showing one of the stones. When one would light up or something, he would indicate with the urim and the thummim stones. Now, that's an interesting thing, but it is not by far the Lord's most consistent method of communication. Right? You don't often hear about that in Scripture. Sometimes he revealed things to people through dreams and visions. We've been studying that in Daniel and Revelation. The Lord has a message to convey, and he gives it to them in a vision or a dream in the night. Sometimes, on very rare occasions, he would write things down with his own hand. Again, we're going back to the Ten Commandments, which tells you something. God not only spoke them out loud, but he decided to write them with his own finger. It seems like of all the things in the Bible that is important—of course, all the things in the Bible are important— but certainly you don't want to mess with the Ten Commandments, right? And Jesus did that. You know, he spoke, he he knelt down and wrote in the sand. Sometimes, you think of Daniel chapter 5 and the writing on the wall with Belshazzar's, you know, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Sometimes God writes personally, but he doesn't write most often. That's not his most consistent method of communication. How about this one? Jesus, of course was the clearest communication of the Father's character and, and will that has ever been given. If you want to know what the Father is like, look to Jesus, okay? That's the patently the most clear, unmistakable, this is what the Father is like. But Jesus being here in person is not the Lord's most consistent method of communication. He was here for 30 years, you know, 30 plus years, 33 years, 30, you know, three and a half years in public ministry, and then he's left. Which, good, it's good for us that he left, right? He has a work to do. He has a role to accomplish. But him simply being the face-to-face communicator is not Jesus' primary role. God's most, here's the fill in the blank, consistent method of communicating his will is through prophets. Most consistently, Old Testament, New Testament, Time and time again, God's most consistent way of communicating his will is inspiring or giving his message to his servant, a prophet, and that prophet will convey it on behalf of the Lord. Most consistent method of communication is prophecy. In fact, look at this text from Amos chapter 3. That's going to be page 889 in your pew Bible. Amos chapter 3. We don't often go to Amos, but there are some very, very good things in the book of Amos. In fact, I'll just go ahead and recommend you read it. You should read the 65 other books too, but Amos is good. Okay? Amos, notice this, chapter 3 and verse 7. And notice how important the ministry of prophets is from the Lord's perspective. He says, surely the Lord God does what? No, I'm so glad that sentence doesn't end there. Our Lord God does stuff, yes? Right? But He won't do it unless, as the scripture says, He reveals His secrets to His servants, the prophets, which is the same language we saw in Revelation fellow servant, a prophet. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. So anything, any major activity, any big work of God, any plan that he has, he, if he's going to do something for humanity, he first communicates it to his servant, the prophet. Okay, This is how important prophecy is to the Lord. Now, what is a prophet? I'm guessing if you were to go down to Meyer or stand out in the, uh, some sort of go big big city, go stand in a subway somewhere where a lot of people interact, a train station or something, and just get a, get a cross-section of the thinking of modern society about prophets, I'm guessing you would come up with an unbiblical understanding. People ask, what's a prophet? Most of them would co- picture at least a conjure in their mind of a fortune teller, right? Or some sort of psychic or some sort of mystic. Ooh, that's a prophet. They can see into the future, this kind of stuff. They can read your mind. Let me tell you something, and let's go back to our fill in the blank. Prophets, biblically, prophets are not fortune tellers, nor are they necessarily future tellers. Now, even inside the church, we might say, oh yeah, fortune tellers and you know psychic palm readers, that kind of thing. That's not a real prophet. Prophets are people that the Lord would give a vision of the future. Well, let me tell you something. Being able to tell the future. For instance, the greatest of all the prophets, according to Jesus himself, was John the Baptist. He didn't tell the future. So what is a prophet if not a future teller? Well, let's find out from Scripture. What does the Bible say a prophet is? Well, I'll just go ahead and tell you right away, and then we'll prove it with Scripture. A prophet is someone who conveys a message from God in their own words. If you want to summarize it, a spokesman. That's what we're looking for there, a spokesman. And literally, that terminology comes from dr- directly from Scripture. I want to show you that the biblical definition of a prophet is not a fortune teller or a future teller. It's simply a spokesman for the Lord. Let's go to the book of Hosea, chapter 12, 881. Just nearby there, the book of Amos. Just back a few pages. Hosea, chapter 12, and verse 13. Now, let me ask you a question Who was the Lord's chosen instrument? Who was the individual that God called to lead the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage? What was his name? Moses, right? Now, keep that in mind as we go to Hosea chapter 12. It says, by a what? Prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. Who was the prophet that the Lord used to bring Israel out of Egypt? Moses. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet, he was preserved. Not only did he bring them out, but he kept them. He preserved them. He continued to communicate to them through this gift of prophecy, through a prophet, Moses. Now, let's go back to Exodus chapter 4. Let's see if Scripture supports itself, which of course it's going to do, but let's see if that actually works. Exodus chapter 4, way back in page 54 in your pew Bible. Exodus chapter 4, we're going to start with verse 10. Now, you would think, well, what a great honor it would be to be called by the Lord, to be the leader of your chosen people. You're going to go into the Pharaoh. You're going to lead out this great mass of people. You would be be quick to say yes. Well, not Moses. Exodus chapter 4, we're going to go to verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. You can understand what Moses is saying. It's like, I've been away for 40 years. I'm not the best at the Egyptian language, and you want me to go into the Pharaoh's room and speak for the Lord God of heaven. Surely you can find someone who has more natural ability. I just don't have the equipment for it. Now, look what the Lord said. I love the Lord's thinking in this. So the Lord said to him, verse 11, Who has made man's mouth? You have a problem with your tongue? Don't you think I can fix it? Right? I gave you life in the first place. Don't you think I can give you speech? Who made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I... No, notice this. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. It's like, you're going to speak, but I'm going to give you the words. Right? It's your voice, but my message. The fact that on continues to make this clear, you would think that would be enough reassurance, but look at verse 13. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. I'm fine with the mission, Lord but literally choose anyone else Do you think the Lord was like, well, okay. Never mind, my bad. I shouldn't have asked. Verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said Is I added the But I'm sure it's in there. Okay. Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now, the difficulty with sending Aaron is he already speaks well. It takes the opportunity to give glory to the Lord for something supernatural and says, oh, but this guy has natural ability. Or like, I wanted to use you. I picked you because you can't speak well. Fine, we'll use Aaron. But, he said, you're still not off the hook. Verse 15, now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with his mouth and with uh, your mouth and with his mouth. And I shall teach you what you shall say. Here's our definition. Verse 16, so he shall be your what spokesman to the people. And he himself shall be as a mouth for you and you shall be to him as God. Right? So God said, I originally I wanted me to be God and you to be my prophet, my spokesman. But now you've deferred it down the line, so okay, fine. I'll be with both of you, and you will be like God, and he will be your spokesman. It just shifted it down the line. Originally I wanted to me to speak to you, and you speak to Pharaoh. Now we've added in Aaron. But the same process exists. Now you will be like God, and he will be your spokesman, okay? Now, let's go on to chapter 7, by the way. And we'll see the equivalence between spokesman and prophet. The Spokesman and prophet are the exact same thing. It's chapter 7 and verse 1. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your what? Prophet. This time, instead of he'll being your spokesman, it says he'll be your prophet. Therefore, we have a clear equivalence from the Lord himself that a prophet is simply a spokesman for God. It doesn't have to be telling the future. It's just relaying whatever message God says in your voice. You speak for God. Spokesman for God is the definition of a prophet. Jeremiah chapter 1, we see this several times in the Bible, this reiterated, this definition. Page 725 in your pew Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 1, starting with verse 5. Page 725, Jeremiah 1, starting with verse 5. Uh, The Christian world knows this passage very, very well. We speak of it especially when we speak of one particular popular issue, but I want you to see the bigger context of this passage. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a what? Prophet to the nations. So he's speaking to Jeremiah. He said, I've been planning for you to be my prophet for a very long time. And notice what Jeremiah says. Oh, Lord, I'm honored. How may I serve you? Verse 6. Then said I, "Ah Lord God, behold, I cannot speak. Now, is his time, what's his excuse? For I am a youth. Oh, I would work for you, Lord, but you know, I'm young, and you, have, you, know, you know how youngins are. Can't trust it to do anything. I love, for the sake of youth ministry, I love the fact that the Lord doesn't say, oh, I'm sorry, you're right, you are too young. Ugh, sorry. We can't use young people. No. The Lord said to me, do not say, I am a youth. Now, is he saying, lie about your age? Is that what he's saying? No, he's saying, do not use your youth as an excuse to do what I ask you to do. Moses tried it with the whole, I'm slow of tongue, and I didn't like it then. And you're trying to get away with, oh, I'm too young. I don't like it now. Right? Right? Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. So my commands coming out of your mouth makes you my prophet, spokesman for the Lord. Verse 8, do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then, verse 9, the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words, where? In your mouth. The word of the Lord through you is the gift of prophecy. Biblically, the spokesman for the Lord. Again, we see this in 2 Peter chapter 1. Just one more time because it's in your notes there, but hopefully you're getting the picture very clearly. Page 1166 in your pew Bible. 2 Peter chapter 1. Here the, prophet, uh, the apostle Peter is speaking about how you should trust the word of prophecy, the words of Scripture, even more than their own personal experience of having been with Jesus. Notice what he says, Second Peter chapter one and verse sixteen. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's like, We're not making up this Jesus. We were literally there. We saw it. Verse 17, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came from to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Speaking of the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter was one of those there, right? Peter, James, and John. And he says in verse 19, And so we have the prophetic word, the word of Scripture, confirmed. Notice this, he says, all of that eyewitness testimony was simply a confirmation of the prophecies, the scriptures that would been written before. So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Notice he says, don't just heed our personal experience. Our experience simply confirms the scripture. And that's what you would do well to follow shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Old Testament and New Testament, you see that the prophetic gift is simply the Holy Spirit's enabling you to receive and transmit God's message through your voice, a spokesman for the Lord. I just want to make that patently clear as we go on. Now, there is this urban legend floating around the Christian church that somehow the gift of prophecy, God speaking through human messenger, having a a voice or spokesman on the earth, died out when the scriptures closed that all of a sudden, once the book of Revelation was done, the canon was sealed up, that was the end of the apostolic time, well, then prophecy ceased. But what's fascinating in this is, for instance, the next point that you're going to see there, and we don't have time to go through them all, but you'll find in the book of Romans and several different places in the New Testament, different lists of spiritual gifts, like administration, like tongues, like hospitality, like you know, healing, like faith, whatever, but the only gift that's mentioned in every single gift list is the gift of prophecy. Sometimes when they talk about spiritual gifts, they don't even mention tongues. They don't mention healing. But every time they mention spiritual gifts, they always mention the gift of prophecy. It's the only one out of all the spiritual gifts that's always mentioned. And there's never even a hint of an expiration date. Right? Never any hint that any spiritual gift, whether it be tongues or whether it be healing, whether it be administration, whether it be prophecy, would ever be relegated to only the Bible time or only the apostles' era. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that. In fact, we see exactly the opposite. Go to Joel chapter 2, page 885 in your pew Bible. Joel chapter 2, speaking specifically of the last days, The Bible explicitly says that the gift of prophecy will be fully manifested. Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. By the way, biblically, is there any problem with a woman being a prophet? Absolutely not. Old Testament, New Testament, you have example upon example of women being called into the prophetic office. And specifically, looking at end-time events, the prophet Joel calls out women as included in this manifestation. Notice again, verse 28, "...and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions." Apparently, it's not relegated to only the old people, or not only the young people, or only the men, or only the women. He said, "I'm going to be raising up the gift of prophecy and the last days, regardless of any of those distinctions." Also, and to make sure it's clear, verse twenty, and also on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. This is a prophecy of. Just before the coming of Jesus, the final days of earth history, he said, there will be, not there might be, or there could be, or there should be, or like there to be, there will be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit specifically in the gift of prophecy. In fact, Matthew chapter 24 makes this implicit argument. Jesus himself, page 960 in your pew Bible, when Jesus is looking at end-time events, he specifically calls out prophets. Verse twenty four. And you gotta you gotta read this carefully, but notice what he's saying. He says, For false Christs, by the way, if there's a false Christ, does that mean that there's a true Christ? Yes, (laughs) there is a true Christ, thus the Antichrist, a false Christ, right? False Christs and false what? Prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to do what? To deceive, if possible, even the elect see, I have told you beforehand. So if someone's going to counterfeit something, doesn't there have to be an original? If there's going to be a false, doesn't there have to be a true? That's why you never see a counterfeit $13 bill. Because who would it fool? Right? The goal of a counterfeit is to imitate a real thing. Christ says there's going to be false Christ, and I'm the real Christ. There's false prophets. That means that in the last days, there will be true prophets. It's biblical. So far from the Bible ever saying that the the gift dissolved or it expired or it just kind of ran out or God stopped it, the Bible says exactly the opposite, that only that at the end times it will be an increase of this gift of prophecy.
1: Now, the Bible
0: tells us how to distinguish true from false because that kind of lays the groundwork. Man, if there's false and their whole purpose is to deceive, we better know how to tell the difference. It's true. The Bible also gives us that, but we're going to get back to that in just a little bit. Let me show you something that I find just fascinating. It's called God's Prophecy Pattern. It's on the next page on the back side. God's Prophecy Pattern. God has a way. Now, again, remember Amos chapter 3. Surely the sovereign Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the whom? So any major thing, anything that God has planned, any action he's going to take, any work he's going to uh, accomplish, he has a way of communicating. He promises to communicate it to his people through prophets. Now, how he does that is just fascinating to me. What you'll see is a pattern where long before the foretold event comes, he has the first person say it. A predictive prophet, right? Who's going to predict long ahead. The prediction prophet. But way on the other end, as that prophecy is coming true or about to come true, God will raise up another prophet who says that thing they prophesied back then is now underway. Okay, So you have the prediction prophet way before it happens, long before it happens. And then you have the present truth prophet who raised up to say, hey, this is happening now. Does that make sense? Okay. Every time the Lord God does something, he does it in this way. For example, who was the very first prophet in the Bible? Apparently the first prophet of the Bible is. <laughs> Thank you. Enoch. How do we know? Because the Bible says so. Yeah. Go to Jude. A little bitty sliver of a book right before Revelation Jude 14, it's so short that you don't have chapters, one page in this Bible. Jude 14, but it has a lot of powerful stuff in Jude. Jude 14, it's going to be page 1173 in your pew Bible. It says, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam. And you think, wow, that's pretty long from Adam. But really, I mean, Adam lived 930 years. He not only saw his kids and his grandkids, but also his great-grandkids and his great-great-great-grandkids. You know, clearly Adam was still alive at the time of Enoch. This is within Adam's lifetime, and Adam was the very first person. Okay? So this is very early on in earth's history. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, did what? Prophesied. First reference of the earliest prophet in Scripture. Prophesied. About these men, the men that Jude is speaking of, and there's some rascals and scoundrels. You read Jude 14, I mean, you read the book of Jude, bad people being talked about. But notice what Enoch talks about here. Prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten, thousand, ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Okay? Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, very early on, is looking, and let me tell you something. Let me ask you a question. Is he looking at the first coming of Jesus? No. No. He's looking at the second coming of Jesus, right? The great day of the Lord, which will institute, inaugurate that great millennium where the destruction of the wicked is going to happen. He's looking down to the final execution of judgment. He's not looking to Christ coming as a humble babe and going to be rejected by men. He's coming with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment. He's looking way at the end of time. From the beginning of time, he's looking at the end of time. Now, that alone is fascinating, but obviously Enoch was a trusted prophet of God, seventh from Adam. Now, I lay that framework because we're going to go back to the book of Genesis now and see what all Enoch prophesied about. Now, clearly, the Bible already tells us he prophesied about the second coming of Jesus. But is it possible, is it quite plausible, that he also prophesied about some things closer to his time? I believe yes. Go back to the book of Genesis, now chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, that's going to be page 5 in your pew Bible. We read about this Enoch character in verse 25. I mean, sorry, 21. Enoch lived 65 years and begot, who's that guy? Methuselah. Now, Methuselah has the great distinction of being the longest-lived person who was ever born and died. However, he is not the longest-lived human being. The longest-lived human being is Enoch, because he is still going, right? Now, Methuselah, however, was born to Enoch when Enoch was 65 years old. And apparently that was quite significant. It was recorded in Scripture in Y, verse 22, And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch did what? Walked with God 300 years. So apparently the the birth of Enoch or something around there was very, very significant, and it marked this transition. Here he walks with God another 300 years. Now, that's not to say he didn't walk with God before, but after he begat Methuselah, he walks another 300 years. It just says after he walked 300 years with the Lord and had sons and daughters. This was not like often a convent somewhere away from the world, isolated hermit life. He's still having a normal life, but he has a very intense walk with God, as it describes here goes on to say, So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, Enoch is the one that Jude records as having prophesied about the second coming, but also I believe there's a prophecy tucked right in here in this genealogy. And that is in the name of his firstborn son, Methuselah Methuselah is actually a combination name of a couple different words basically a couple different phrases wrapped up in the meaning of Methuselah one being when he dies and the other being it will be sent Okay, basically Methuselah is a billboard that says when I die it's going to come that's a weird thing to name your child unless you had a particular reason to do so. Now, what's very interesting is you go to Genesis chapter 7 now. Of course, in Genesis chapter 6, you see the degradation of the earth and it becomes so wicked that the Lord decides to wipe them out with a great flood of water. But of course, he has a savior ready for them, a gentleman by the name of Noah, and he builds this ark that anyone is welcome to come on board, right? And it tells us In chapter 7, in verse 11, how old Noah was when the flood was sent. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. In the 600th year of Noah's life. Now, why is that significant? Well, we can go on. And actually, if you were to do an interesting thing, you can add up the genealogy from Methuselah to Noah. And of course, Methuselah is the longest-lived individual who lived and then died. And he lived 969 years, which when you add them up, just happens to bring you to the 600th year of Noah's life. So the year Methuselah died, the flood was sent. There was a prophecy about the coming destruction of the world from Enoch, this prophet of God, as the Bible already describes him, in his son's name, Methuselah, that when he dies, it will be sent, and that very year it was sent. Now, the Lord didn't just give 969 years earlier, because, by the way, did you know the day and the hour that Methuselah was going to die? No. But you can certainly start to see it winding down, right? Which I'm guessing in his old age was kind of an, an odd, odd, awkward thing. You know, it's like, hey, is Methuselah still? It's like, yes, I'm still here, you know. But it's getting closer, it's getting closer. Now, that was the predictive prophet. But did the Lord raise up someone to say, hey, this long predicted event is now about to happen? Of course. Noah. Noah's a preacher of righteousness, 120 years. He's building the ark, right, in full view of people. The animals come in, supernatural evidence. He makes that one last plea. But only he and his family came in. Which, by the way, let's not throw Noah too far under the bus, or in this case, I guess, under the boat. Because at least he got his own family in. Now, the significance of that to me is only dawning on me now as I have children, right? Now, I hope that through my preaching, some souls will be saved. I hope that. But in my own personal life, I want my family to be saved, right? And so we can say, man, he didn't get anybody else on the boat, but at least he got his own family. And in the, last, in the, in the final analysis, that's a pretty good record, Right? So that was the great experience. Surely the sovereign Lord God does nothing unless he reveals the secret to his servants, the prophet. Let's go on. Look at Genesis chapter 15. We're going to see that this pattern of how the Lord communicates his will through the prophets is sustained all throughout Scripture. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Speaking to Abram. Of course, he's later known as Abraham. At this point, he's just Abram. Chapter 15, that's going to be page 12 in your pew Bible. The Lord gives a prophecy of a long, ahead of time, something that's going to happen. It explains to him in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13, Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. So before he's even had a child of promise, before he's even had a son at all, he has a prophecy about what's going to happen to his descendants. They're going to be strangers, they're going to be mistreated, and it's going to last for 400 years. Now, of course, to get a little technical, 400 years from this point, 430 years from his original call back in Genesis chapter 12, And from the time of that, so the Exodus, when they were taken up out of Egypt, is 400 years from Genesis 15 and 430 years from Genesis chapter 12. But notice in Exodus chapter 12, when the children of Israel finally come up out of Egypt, of course the Lord raised up a prophet to do this work. And as we've already seen from the book of Hosea, the children of Israel were brought up out of Egypt by a prophet. And that individual's name was Moses. Exodus chapter twelve. Look now at verse thirty one. I'm sorry, forty one. Exodus twelve, forty one. Well, we'll start with verse 40. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years, and it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. God had the predictive prophet in Abraham and the present truth prophet in Moses. Go to Jeremiah chapter 25. This is a prophecy we've seen a few times already in this series. But now I want to see it, page 755, I want you to see it in the light of how God uses prophets to convey his will. Jeremiah chapter 25, we're going to start with verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, you have not heard my words. Behold, I will send and all take all the families of the north, says the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, And will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. By the way, is he speaking in prophetic time or literal time here? literal time. There's no other symbolism used there whatsoever. He says his name is Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon, he's going to come from this direction, and the time is going to be 70 years. Very patently clear, specific to that time frame. Of course, 70 years later, when it's time to go, Daniel chapter 9, a few books to the right, Daniel chapter 9, Page 867 in your pew Bible, Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, so now it's out of the time of Babylon, the Medo-Persian empire is in control, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he should accomplish 70 years in the desolation's world of jerusalem so that 70-year babylonian captivity had been prophesied by jeremiah years before it happened then during the 70-year captivity daniel experienced it and as it was about to be released the other way daniel is praying and gets a prophecy about the next thing to come right there's a pattern god has a predictive prophet and then a present truth prophet daniel chapter 8 14 why we're right there in daniel a much longer time prophecy. In fact, the longest time prophecy in the Bible. Daniel eight fourteen, page 866. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, did the Lord raise up someone? Because 1844 is when that one terminated. Did the Lord raise up someone to bear a message about this coming conclusion to this prophecy? Yes. Now, many Seventh-day will say, Aha, that's Ellen G. White. and We're going to come to Ellen G. White. But let me tell you something. Ellen G. White did not prophesy any time before the Great Disappointment. Okay? But someone did. His name was William Miller. The Lord raised up this messenger. Mrs. White makes this patently clear, if you trust in her writings, as we're going to get to in just a minute, that she says he was the messenger that the Lord raised up with this message. He studies Scripture Went from being a deist, as we talked about earlier, to a believer by simply studying the Word of God and letting it interpret itself. And he stumbles upon this 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 Daniel chapter eight verse fourteen prophecy of eighteen forty four. And in his mind, the world's going to end. The sanctuary is going to be cleansed, and the sanctuary is this earth, and the cleansing agent must be fire. Right? So the Lord's going to come and cleanse the earth and. He is assur- he's absolutely certain of the fact that Jesus is coming back soon and very soon. Others start to believe his message, and we have a whole lot of history. We're just skipping over here, but others start to believe his message, and they come down and they study the Bible, and they study the Bible, and they find out that the, October 22, 1844 is the Day of Atonement on the calendar, and in 1844, of course, would be the fulfillment of the 2300 years. Jesus is coming. Now, they got the event Wrong but the timing, they were spot on. Timing was spot on. William Miller and others spoke boldly about this truth, bringing the present truth of this 2,300-year judgment to light. Now, where does Al-G. White fit in all this? I was really kind of hoping that was going to be the punchline, right? No. Because we still have that prophecy of Enoch, seventh from Adam, who prophesied about the second coming of the Lord. William Miller thought he was preaching about the second coming of the Lord, but he was inadvertently preaching about the beginning of the judgment in 1844, the heavenly judgment. But again, we have this Enoch Prophecy. Go to Mark Chapter thirteen, if you will. Mark Chapter thirteen. Verse thirty two. Does anyone know when Jesus is coming? No. But we do know that it's going to be soon. Jesus makes this clear, Mark thirteen thirty two. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Okay? Now, does that mean that no one will know anything? No, it doesn't mean no one will know anything. It just simply means we won't know the specific day and hour, the specific timing, the calculation of the date. However, I believe that the Lord has raised up in this last day remnant movement the gift of prophecy, just as He foretold in the book of Joel, just as the Bible looks forward to in the book of Revelation, how there would be this gift of the prophet amongst God's people just before Jesus comes again. And I believe firmly that that manifestation was the genuine spirit of prophecy as manifest, that demonstrated in the work of Ellen G. White. Now, let me give you some reasons why. Now, let's go back now to the thing we skipped over. How do you test a true prophet? Now, you've got no problem, I guess, accepting Noah as a prophet of God. No problem with Moses, no problem with Daniel, no problem with John the Baptist. But what about people who are, you know, don't have a book in the Bible? By the way, were there prophets during the Bible time who never had a book in the Bible? Yes, a non-canonical prophet. They might have even written books, but they just didn't make it into the Bible. That doesn't make them any less of a prophet. The Lord just chose not to include their works in the Bible. That would be technically a literary, non-canonical prophet. Okay. In fact, you have non-literary, non-canonical. who didn't write anything, didn't get anything included in the Scriptures. Again, we come back to John the Baptist, a non-literary. We have no nothing of what he ever wrote. We have no evidence that he ever wrote any book. His ministry was very, very short. But Jesus called him the greatest of all the prophets. Why was he the greatest of all the prophets, by the way? Was it because his ministry was so long? No. Because he wrote the most books? No. Because he told the most future events? No. Because he pointed and said, Jesus is right there. Jesus is coming, right? It was the subject matter of his prophetic gift that made his the greatest. He says, I'm simply showing you, behold, the Lamb of God. A non-literary, non-canonical prophet is not unheard of. However, I believe that Mrs. White does not fall into that category. I believe that she is a literary, non-canonical prophet. Now, while she was alive, she spoke things, but she has since passed away. But that does, mean, does not mean that her words do not live on in her writings. Okay? Just as the rest of Scripture continues to live on and speak, and the Bible calls it living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It wasn't just a living word of God, while the authors were still alive, the words themselves are inspired of the Lord, and it continues on. There is a message that God has to his people today. Now, testing a prophet. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20, page 1137 in your pew Bible, very simply gives us this good counsel, this good principle to follow, this rule of thumb. It says, do not despise what? Prophecies. Now, does that mean to accept anything that comes along that claims to have a prophetic message? No, because apparently there would be true and there would be false. So what you should neither do is neither reject prophecy out of hand nor accept it carte blanche. Apparently what you should do is use discernment. Do not despise prophecies, but what should we do with them? Test all things and hold fast that which is good. Apparently, there'd be some good and some bad, some true and some false, some genuine and some counterfeit. Don't reject them all and don't accept them all. Test them all and hold fast that which is good. That's, that's logical, yes? Okay, now let's see what the Bible... Now, if it tells us to test it, you would imagine that the Bible would provide those appropriate tests. How in the world do you test a prophet? Does the writing make you feel good? That better not be the test. Is it really interesting writing? Do they have a very nice voice? Oh, they're melodious as they speak. Do you, budge, do you judge a prophet by their, their, their appearance, by their looks? No. Satan himself transforms into an angel of light, and I'm guessing he can make scenes sounds really smooth and really musical and can write a nice poem. But it doesn't mean it's good. That means it's even more dangerous. Right? What we want is biblical truth. So, first of all, the Bible gives us several tests. Now, there are more tests than this, but these are the main four tests that are often used to test whether a person's prophetic gift is genuine or not. Number one, Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20, page 661 in your pew Bible. Their messages must agree with Scripture. Again, Isaiah 820 says, To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. This is, to me, one of the, I mean, obviously there's several here, but one of the most important, you cannot get away from this message. If God raises up a prophet to be a spokesman for him, then that prophet better well harmonize with the prophets that came before. Not because the prophets are all the same, they can be from different ages, speak different languages, but the message is the same, right? The same Holy Spirit that inspired Moses inspired John, right? The beginning of the Bible, the end of the Bible, and if God is going to have a last day prophet, those messages need to harmonize with what's already been given. It cannot go in a different direction and contradict what God has given. So, first of all, you compare it to Scripture. Anytime someone says, I have a word of prophecy all right, I'm not going to hate it out of pocket, and I'm not going to love it out of pocket. I'm going to test it. And the very first thing you do is open your Bible. Does this, whatever the thing the person is saying, correspond with what's previously been given? Scripture always agrees with itself. By the way, if there was any, if there (laughs) is, passes this test with flying colors, look at the great controversy, page 595. This is one of the major books written by Mrs. White. God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the what? The Bible, and the Bible only, as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms. Did Mrs. White expect people to build doctrines off of her writings alone? No. They should harmonize with Scripture, but go back to Scripture and say, is there a thus saith the Lord? In fact, she goes on to say, "As as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms, the opinions of learned men... The deductions of science, well, I can't trust Genesis 1 through 11 because science slow down. Science has been wrong about some stuff. Scripture's never missed once, okay? The deductions of science, the creeds or decisions of ecclesiastical councils, that is, church bodies and church councils, well, the church says so, I guess it's true, slow down. Does it agree with Scripture? The the creeds or decisions of ecclesiastical councils, as numerous and discordant as are the churches which they represent. The voice of the majority, well, everyone thinks it's true. Does that make it right? No. The voice of the majority, not one nor all of these should be regarded as evidence for or against any point of religious faith. Okay. Well, you could say, well, science agrees with it, and everybody thinks so, and the church says it's true, and learned men, that's their opinion. Now, if I combine all of those, does that make it true? No, not necessarily. That could be true. But what makes something true or false is not whether smart people think so, or churches say so, or opinion always has, or tradition says, or is popular. What makes something true is whether God's Word supports it. Par- 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 parenthetically, she goes on. Before accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord, in its support. Mrs. White saw herself as a messenger for the Lord, but never once accepted, expected people to say, well, I said so, so don't look in your Bible. No, 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 no. She better be saying because I say so, because it's frowned in the Bible, and you can look for yourself. Test all things and hold fast that which is good. Passes that test with flying colors. Prophecies come true. By the way, this seems to be a pretty critical one. If part of the prophetic role, even if of a minor part of it, but if it ever involves telling the future, that event better come true. Right? Now, Deuteronomy, chapter 8, I'm sorry, 18, verses 21 and 22. Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible, chapter 18, starting with verse 21 Seems the most simple of all expectations but verse 21 and if we say if you say in your heart how shall we know the word which the lord has not spoken like how can we determine the true from the false Well here's the test verse 22 when a prophet speaks in the name of the lord if the thing does not happen or come to pass that is the that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Right? If someone says, I believe this is going to happen, and then you watch it not happen, you don't have to be afraid of the next thing he says. It's going to be fine. Don't be afraid of him. He's spoken presumptuously. He's spoken ahead of himself. Now, most of Mrs. White's writing was not foretelling the future. It was just forthtelling the message that the Lord had for her regardless of whether it was a future event or not. But there were occasions when she was given insight into events to come. Let me just give you a couple examples here, right there in your notes. January 12, 1861. She had a vision in Parksville, Michigan, right here in the great state of Michigan. She records, this was after a service was going on there, a Sabbath service. People are making sport of the secession ordinance of South Carolina. This is before the Civil War broke out. And apparently in the North, people were laughing at it, like, oh, a little state seceding. Isn't that adorable? We'll just go down there, like a little ash fire, we'll stomp it out. Stomp, stomp, stomp. Most people viewed the Civil War as not really going to be a war. More of a police action, maybe a little uh, tough weekend down in the South. But that's about it. People are making sport of the secession ordinance of South Carolina, but I have just been shown that a large number of states are going to join that state and there will be a most terrible war. And she she continued to say in a bit, there are those in this house who will lose sons in that war. When she returned at a later date to this same church, because there were some people who taunted her that day, most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You just demonstrated you're not a true prophet. They came back and apologized, teary-eyed, because of those, some of those very people had lost sons in that war. Happened again, by the way, September 1, 1902. This is from a manuscript she wrote. Well-equipped tent meetings should be held in the large cities such as San Francisco. Specifically called out San Francisco. There needs to be an urgent work in San Francisco now. Why? For not long hence, these cities will suffer under the judgments of God. San Francisco and Oakland are becoming as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Lord will visit them in wrath. It was 1902. They're becoming as Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, shortly thereafter, there was a great earthquake. In San Francisco. And what wasn't destroyed by the earthquake was ravaged by the fire that followed. And if you look back in Seventh Avenue's history, you'll find out that there was massive work, huge endeavors going on in San Francisco at the turn of the century that were never started again because the fire and the earthquake completely sh- just shut everything down. And she was saying beforehand, we need to work there now because something's about to happen from the Lord. I believe she passes the second test with flying colors once again. Of course, 1 John chapter 4, page 1170 in your pew Bible, gives another test of true versus false inspiration from the Lord. 1 John chapter 4, page 1170 in your pew Bible. Starting with verse 1. Beloved, and this seems to be the same thing we've seen, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Same thing we've been told again, but here's the test that's being articulated this time. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Of course, the Antichrist doesn't want to focus on Jesus Christ. It wants to use the trappings of Jesus Christ to bring glory and honor to itself. A true prophet will not do that. It will make Christ the burden of its work. It will make Christ the center of everything. It will lift up Jesus Christ and not draw people to itself. Jesus Christ the center. Notice this, page Uh, There are just so many, so many, so many, so many references. This one, this is just one of just a myriad uh, of references you could give for demonstrating that Mrs. White's writings were always centered on Jesus. Our High Calling, page 16. Christ, his character and work, is the center and circumference of all truth. You think of a circle, right? He's the center point, and he's also the edge point. He's the beginning and the end. He's the whole thing, the center and the circumference of all truth. He is the chain upon which the jewels of doctrine are linked. By the way, if you ever preach a doctrine that doesn't have any connection with Jesus Christ, you haven't preached a doctrine. You've preached an opinion. You might have preached a theory, but you haven't preached the truth as it is in Jesus. Right? Very clearly here. He is the chain upon which the jewels of doctrine are linked. In him is found the complete system of truth. Everything must be centered in Jesus. For 70 years, that was the ultimate aim of this woman, was to lift up Jesus Christ and simply relay the messages given her by him. And finally, fruit inspection. Now, we're not called to judge people, right? The Bible clearly says, judge not lest ye be judged. However... We should be discerning and look at the evidence in the life to see if it matches up with the profession of the mouth. Right? We are called to inspect fruit. In fact, Jesus himself gives this one Matthew chapter 7, page 941 in your Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 7, page 941. Starting with verse 15, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets. Over and over again, he's always being aware of false prophets. Again, reiterating that there should be true. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now, that's an interesting thing. They will come to you in sheep's clothing, right? They'll look lamb-like, but inside they'll be ravenous wolves. You know, they dress up as prey, but they're actually predators. It's kind of like the beast from the earth. has horns like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. It's false. Jesus said, beware of false prophets. Come, you come to you in sheep's clothing, and inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their what? Fruits. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? there's a beautiful thing. You go back to the creation story. Every time you make something, it's according to its kind, has seed in it according to its kind. Every time you plant an apple, an apple tree comes up, right? Apple seeds produce apple trees. Every time. And if I went out to an apple tree and I picked off a peach, I would call the newspaper, right? That would be groundbreaking, stop the presses news. It's never happened. And Jesus says, it's just that consistent in the personal life. Whatever comes out, is an evidence of what's already in. Inwardly, they're going to be ravenous wolves, and what comes out of them, watch for what comes out. Not just the profession, not which they look like or sound like, but watch the trajectory of their life. Watch the character of what they develop, and those who take their messages, what do they become? Right? Watch the fruit as it comes off the tree. Even so, verse 17, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. This is from Jesus himself. Fruit inspection. Fruit inspection. And I can only tell you that for this one, you're just going to have to taste the fruits to see if they're good. Which, by the way, is a biblical principle, too. The Bible says when it comes to the Lord Himself, Psalm 34, verse eight: 8, oh, O taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. Now you can stand off objectively and look around, but unless you actually give it a shot, you'll never know between good and evil. Second Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 20, Bible simply says, Believe His prophets and you shall prosper. So I want to challenge you to do something. If you have questions... And you're unsure. You don't want to dismiss out of hand, presumptuously, nor do you want to accept something that's false. And you want to test for yourself whether this particular gift is truly manifested in our time. The gift of prophecy is evidenced in the ministry of Ellen G. White. Pick up one of her books and read it and start inspecting the fruit. Taste it for yourself. Read it. Don't take my word for it. I mean, I hope that you trust me, but not that much that you'll put your eternal life. Come on now. Pick up a book and read. Give it a shot. If you would like a book from the writing, we'll give you a free one. On your way out tonight, stop by the resources. We'll give you a book from the writings of Mrs. White. Give you several different options. Take your pick. But read whatever it is and test it. See if it matches up with Scripture. See if it's accurate in its predictions. See if it fits all the criteria outlined from the Scripture itself and test all things and hold fast that which is good. I believe with all of my heart that if you give it an honest taste test, you will see that indeed it passes every test and it is good. Friends, the Lord has not in his last days, if he's going to do something, he always communicates through his servants, the prophets, and I believe Jesus is about to do something, the biggest thing he's ever done, which is come again. I believe the Lord has a present truth messenger in manifested in the Seventh day Adventist movement. I would challenge you to taste for yourself and see that it is good. Has tonight's presentation made sense? Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to ask you to bless us tonight. Lord help us to test all things, whether it's preaching or teaching or yes, even the gift of prophecy. We trust your word that prophet is a valid, legitimate thing, but we also know that there's false prophets. So, Lord, guide us in determining the true from the counterfeit, the the original from the false. So, Lord, as we do that, help us not harden our hearts, nor be overtly naive, but help us to simply ask for the leading of your Holy Spirit, compare all things to Scripture, and whatever is good, Lord, help us to hold on to it and take it as light from Jesus himself. So, Lord, bless us to that end. Keep us faithful to your cause, for we pray it in Jesus' name.